Before preaching on 2 Samuel 1, a pastor shared this one story. Not sure if it's true, but... There once was a young, accident-prone, clumsy American pilot stationed aboard an aircraft carrier during World War II. Many had doubts as to whether this man can fly, but one day he was on a mission and everything seemed fine. He spotted and sunk a Japanese warship, then he shot down several Japanese Zeros, but then he ran out of ammunition and fuel, so he tried to return to his aircraft carrier, but he couldn't find it. Suddenly, the clouds opened up, and there below him was an aircraft carrier. For once, his landing was flawless. With the plane secure, he jumped out and rushed up to the commanding officer, eager to share how well he did, how he sunk a Japanese warship, downed several fighters, to which the commander responded, Ha, so! His successful mission ended with his flawless landing on a Japanese aircraft carrier. Now that seems similar to the predicament of one character in today's passage. And before I read it, I want to set the scene as we're traveling back to the time of David about 3,000 years ago. As we land in the Old Testament, we're about to make the transition from 1st to 2nd Samuel. Those two were originally regarded as one work of Samuel in the Hebrew scriptures. But our English Bibles follow the twofold division scheme in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Generally speaking, what happens in 1st and 2nd Samuel is that God permits to transition from theocracy to monarchy, and there are three key figures, Samuel, Saul, and David. But all throughout, God remains holy and sovereign in the midst of all the change. That's important to remember in the dark days of war and defeat, and when there's a power vacuum. In chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we saw the end of Saul's reign, but his decline began much earlier than that. As a king, Saul looked apart, but soon fell apart. When he stood among the people, he was taller than any from his shoulders upward, but he sure acted small. He feared the people and obeyed their voice over God's voice. He had potential to be a great vessel for the Holy Spirit, but instead he was troubled by a distressing spirit. One thing led to another. The breakdown of Saul's relationship with God leads to all sorts of human problems. When the Philistines invaded, Saul didn't have God speaking to him from above. He also didn't have David, his best warrior, by his side. Remember, Saul's been busy hunting him as a fugitive, branding him as a threat to the kingdom. And that led him to flee to Philistia as a refugee. No one alive could help. So the desperate king tried to conjure up the dead. The ghost of the deceased prophet Samuel, only to be informed that he'll be joining the dead soon. 
As scripted, the Israelite army was utterly defeated on Mount Gilboa. Saul and his three sons were killed. And here's the verdict on his life from 1 Chronicles 10, 13 to 14. Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. There is a touching epilogue to Saul's story. The news of his demise spreads, including the report that the enemies disgraced Saul and his sons by hanging their bodies on the wall of a town called Bethshan. When that news reached the ears of the people in Jabesh Gilead, they remember Saul in his better moments, how he rescued them from the Ammonites. So their valiant men undertook a dangerous journey, took down the corpses, gave them a proper burial, paid their respects. Today we'll see how that news spread further all the way to where David resided. When David heard the news of Saul's death, he was far from the battle scene in a city called Ziklag. Achish, the king of Philistines, gave the city to David, thinking that he's now one of their own a defactor of Israel. But in reality, Ziklag became David's base of covert operations. He pretended to work for Philistia while fighting the other enemies of Israel. Among those enemies were the Amalekites, a collection of tribes who lived south of Israel. They've been trouble for David's people for a while now, since the days of Exodus, before his passing, Moses reminded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 18, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rare ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. See, there were opportunists, cowards who targeted the weakest and the most vulnerable. They continued as enemies through the era of the judges and the early monarchy. Saul had a chance to be God's executioner and fulfill the prophecy of doom God spoke against them, but he failed to obey. Back to Ziklag and fast forward to just before today's passage, it was up to David to deal with them and fight them. The Amalekites countered and took vengeance by invading Ziklag. When David and his men were away, they burned the city, took alive the wives and the children. And look at this cowardly strategy of targeting the weak, similar to what they did back in Exodus. When David arrived and saw what happened, he strengthened himself in God, led his men to catch up to the looters, destroyed them, and recovered all that was taken without loss. That's the slaughter mentioned in verse 1 of today's passage. So now it looks like David's getting a much-deserved rest after an eventful week or so. But it's about to get stressful again with the arrival of someone from Saul's camp. So let's see what happens in today's passage. 2 Samuel 1. 
If you're using the Pew Bible, you can follow along with me. You'll find it in page 211. 2 Samuel 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? And the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he, called, and he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil from the blood of the stain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. And the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. 
So this week I was listening to Alistair Begg preach on this passage. Uh, he observes how the storyline in verses 1 through 16 progresses by means of David's five questions. Verse 3, where have you come from? Verse 4, how did the matter go? Verse 5, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Now, after question number three, there's a break until evening. Then David has two more. Verse 13, where are you from? Verse 14, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then there's David's lamentation with the key phrase repeated in verses 19, 25, and 27, how the mighty have fallen. So altogether now, verses 1 through 10 narrate David's inquisition. And I would say verses 11 to 16 report David's indignation. Verses 17 to 27 show us David's lamentation. In each of the three sections, there's at least one mention of that phrase, Saul and Jonathan, his son. We'll talk more in detail about what's going on within these verses in a moment. But first, I want to present three principles for godly living based on David's example. First, we learn from verses 1 through 10 that a godly person hears with discernment. Godly person hears with discernment. Secondly, we find in verses 11 through 16 that a godly person acts in justice. A godly person acts in justice. Thirdly and finally, in verses 17 to 27, we observe how a godly person honors authority. A godly person honors authority. First, a godly person hears with discernment. So one more observation from Alistair Begg. The exchange between David and this man, similar to the exchange between Eli the priest and the messenger back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's verse 12 to 18 in chapter 4, 1 Samuel. Now, both times a man fled from the battle, bringing news of defeat against the Philistines. Both times the man's clothes are torn, and there's dust on his head. These are symbolic and ceremonial acts that accompany mourning and symbolize identification with the dead. Both times the recipients of the message are anxious to know the outcome. Both times, the reports move from bad to worse to worst. As the questions begin, the back and forth is quick and rapid. Question and answer in verse 3, question and answer in verse 4. But then there's a key turning point between verses 4 and 5. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. Well, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The conversation pivots here. And the young man who told him started talking too much from verses 6 to 10. Now, how do we distinguish between what's truth and what's fiction in this man's story? 
Thankfully, all that we, the readers, have to do is turn back a few pages and fact check the messenger. So keep your finger on 2 Samuel 1 and go back to 1 Samuel 31. And I'll read from verses 1 through 6. Follow along. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. So now compare this to 2 Samuel 1, 6-10. To know what really happened in Saul's last moments, the first step is to rely on the narrators and their narrations in 1 Samuel 31 and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. That is, give more weight to the words of the authors than the words of the Amalekite reported in 2 Samuel 1. As you read the Bible, you'll see how it truthfully reports lies, obviously not to endorse those lies, but to expose those lies as lies. So, Like here, we do that as we listen carefully to the narrator's voice, then we'll see where the young man added, twisted, or omitted from what really happened. Upon a close inspection, it's futile to try to harmonize the two. The messenger says he happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa. That's like me saying, I visited Seoul, South Korea, and, you know, just stumbled onto the DMZ just by, by chance, right? The Amalekite says Saul was leaning on his staff, but the narrators say, he fell on his sword. It's strange. Now, go on to ask yourself this. If the Israelite king would rather kill himself than be killed by the uncircumcised Philistines, then why, would, why ask an uncircumcised Amalekite to kill him? Not adding up. The truth is, Saul died of suicide, not euthanasia. It's said twice in 1 Samuel 31, verse 5, and First Chronicles 10.5, the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead. Surely he would have sure of, made sure of that before, I don't know, falling on his own sword and killing himself. So really, who is this Amalekite? He's an experienced opportunist, a ghoul a vulture, plundering for his own gain. He's at the scene after Saul's death, but before the enemies collected his body. It's probably nighttime. The Philistines were forced to wait until dawn to find and strip the dead. Under the cover of darkness, the man sought trinkets. He found the king already dead, takes his crown and bracelet. But it's not like he can take these and go to the local pawn shop or put them up on eBay. 
he perceives that the best trade-in value for these is favor with David. On the way to see David, he concocts a story, something like this. I'll say I was there, not as a scavenger, but as one responsible for Sue's coup de gras, mercy killing. I'll report that the former king and his heir are out of the picture now. I'll bring this good news to the next king and be rewarded handsomely. I'll be rich and famous, he thought. Now, David didn't have 1 Samuel 31 and 1 Chronicles 10 in front of him like we do. But he has God and access to his wisdom. He has ears to listen carefully. Again, a godly man hears with discernment. Since the young man who told him brought the royal jewels, there's no doubt the king is dead. David is going to act on that certainty immediately, but wait before taking further action with the messenger. And that leads to the second principle, a godly person acts in justice. As soon as they realize what happened at Gilboa, David and his men tear their clothes, mourn, weep, and fast until evening. As I read this, I can understand doing this for Jonathan and others who died, but for Saul, at best, you know, if I was David, I might manufacture some crocodile tears. But David's a godly man. After regaining his composure, David continues to question the man who told him the news. There's question number four in verse 13. Where are you from? It looks a lot like question number one in verse three. Where have you come from? But the earlier inquiry was about location. The later one's about identity. I've had some times when someone asked me where I'm from, I could say Maryland and leave it at that. I mean, I did live here for about 80% of my life. But what they really want to know is this. From which of the East Asian countries did I or my ancestor come from? In answering that, Amalekai reveals himself to be something like a resident alien of our times. The law of Moses ordinarily protects such ones, requiring Israelites to treat them as one of their own. But the question, there's more to it than that. The young man's probably thinking, David's asking more questions about me because I did something great. I'm about to get paid. Remember how after David defeated Goliath, Saul and Abner inquired of his origins, like hometown and family background back in 1 Samuel 17. Just as that young David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite, this young man answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. But this man's nothing like David. And I'm not just talking about ethnicity here. The fifth and final question confirms that. It's the most important question. How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And it's this question that damns him, that separates David from him, literally. 
And here's another good chance to review what happened earlier in 1 Samuel. Twice during his fugitive days, David had a chance to kill Saul. Be done with this life on the run. Take the crown for himself. Once back in chapter 24, the king was in a cave, and David was close enough to him to secretly cut off a corner of his robe. But his conscience bothered him. So he confessed to Saul what he did once there was some safe distance between them. Later in chapter 26, David had another chance. Saul was again out hunting him. One night he and his men were deep asleep. They slept so soundly that David and his companion Abishai could walk right up to the king without anyone stirring. Abishai knew David wouldn't dare touch the king, so he simply asked permission to strike him himself. Here was David's reply. Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David's a man who feared God. He did not take matters into his own hands. He trusted in the Lord's sovereign plan. But this Amalekite, like his ancestors, does not fear God. Like them, he was an opportunist. He completely misunderstood and underestimated the character of David. What's worse, as this young man told him about Saul, he told on himself. He he who took the crown from Saul's head will have blood on his own head. Up to this point, David has heard with the sermon, and now he'll act in justice. The next ruler of Israel precociously demonstrates the wisdom of Proverbs 20, 26. A wise king sips out the wicked and brings a threshing wheel over them. As we wrap up David's questioning, there's a question for us. Related to the gospel. How would you fare if you were interrogated like the Amalekite? Not by David, but by a greater and wiser king, Jesus Christ. This is not just a hypothetical question. All, dead or alive, out of every grave, out of every place, will stand before him someday. If you want to enter his future kingdom, heaven, what would you bring before him? Would you try bribing him with precious gifts? Try hiding your evil by pretending to be good. It's no use. I warn you, if you think David has discernment, consider how Christ knows what is in man. John 2.25 tells us. His eyes are like a flame of fire. You cannot hide your sin from Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, we're not so different than the villains of the Bible. We're covetous like Achan, greedy like Gehazi. We're opportunists with little regard for life like this Amalekite. We not only deserve the wrath of man to be stoned, 
be contracted with leprosy, be struck down. We deserve the wrath of God, separation from him for eternity. But praise God that he sent his son as the seed of David, as the Lord's anointed Christ. He did what David could not do. Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. He rose again from the grave and did not see corruption. He will return someday to judge all mankind. Until then, we must all repent and turn from our sins. Turn to Jesus by faith and beg for mercy. You can do nothing to earn heaven. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like the Amalekite in today's text, someday you'll run out of chances to answer questions with honesty. This is the time to acknowledge sin, reveal iniquity, confess your transgression. Now is the time to find forgiveness from the Lord. Do not wait until it's too late when you breathe your last breath or Jesus returns to execute justice. What David did, this, did to this Amalekite pales in comparison to what Christ will do in judgment. David not only foreshadows the discernment and judgment of Christ and models it for us, he also exemplifies how a godly person honors authority. So let's move on to that point now. David the detective became David the judge. Now we have David the poet. Verse 17 again mentions Saul and Jonathan his son. And again, I'm amazed that David would write such a moving eulogy for an enemy. A man without faith would easily curse Saul, at least in his thought. But David, by faith, embodies the principle of Romans 12:21: Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he didn't do this for political expediency. He did it because it's the godly thing to do. He anticipates 1 Peter 2:17: He fears God. He honors the king. David does this by composing, recording, and teaching this lamentation. Not much can be known about the musical and literary terms like Song of the Bow and Book of Jasher, but the lyrics are plain and obvious. Note, first of all, that David chooses to focus on the good in Saul. In verse 19, David sees beauty and might in him. In verse 23, he recalls how the king was beloved and pleasant, swift and strong. Very next verse, we see how women prospered under his rule. All the good that Saul did must be told and retold. All the while remembering, all must join David in lamenting. None must be celebrating. The cities named in verse 20 are two of the five major Philistine cities. Their women must not rejoice and triumph over Saul's death while the Israelite women weep. 
In verses 21 to 22, we're told the very mountains of Gilboa must, in a sense, mourn and fast, cease its work of producing fruit for sacrifices. There the weapons and armor of Saul and Jonathan were stained and discarded, but not before they were taken up to fight the enemies. As expected, there's a special place in David's lament for Jonathan. Besides his faith in God, it was his friendship with Jonathan that inspired David to honor authority, even authority that's unjust and hostile to him. To Saul, Jonathan's a loyal son who stuck by his side to the bitter end. In their death, they were not divided. To David, Jonathan's a dear brother. Some make the ridiculous claim that they shared a homosexual relationship, but that's because they don't understand the wonderful depths of a covenantal relationship. Jonathan loved David as a friend, sharing a common faith in God. They made promises and kept them, reaffirmed and kept them again, even after Jonathan's long gone. We'll see how in later passages. But in today's passage, that covenantal faithfulness is shown in the way David honored authority. So two applications of that as we close. Like David, we too can be godly and honor authorities that we serve, both earthly and heavenly. First, we can render to our governing authorities their due. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We pray for them. We do our responsibility as citizens. Now, there are, of course, some biblical caveats to that, but, but when it comes to honoring our heavenly authority, we have no reservations as we honor Jesus Christ. We can fall and prostrate before him, worship him genuinely. Unlike the fallen kings of history, like Saul or even David, we never have to lament his end. That's because even death could not stop the reign of this king, the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ. He rose again to live forever. So as we end, we'll honor his authority. We'll sing to him all majesty ascribe. We'll join the everlasting song. Crown him the Lord of all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it stabilizes us, or when we see all the changes in this world, regimes and terms come to an end, Lord, we can rest assured that there we have a king in heaven who does not change. Lord, in our time on earth, help us to honor, honor you by living in a godly way. Lord, may we serve you. May we have discernment, walk in wisdom. May we execute justice when we're given the power to do so. Lord, may we be able to honor authority, even the ones that disappoint us. Help us to be good witnesses for them 
um, to share the truth that we, have, uh, we believe in in hopes that they would come and see the light. We thank you that we can declare your praises as one who is in control, the ruler of the universe. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.